Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when you think about the word gentleman, you probably think about the kind of well-mannered, well-educated, civil, virtuous, self-controlled fellows who lived in England and America during the 19th century. But there is also a not entirely dissimilar conception of the gentleman that grew out of the East, though it arose quite a bit longer ago. This gentleman was described by the Chinese philosopher Confucius in a text called The Analects, which my guest today says might be thought of as a 2,500-year-old set of advice columns for those who aspire to be exemplary individuals. His name is Robert LaFleur. He's a professor of history and anthropology and the lecturer of the Great Courses course, Books That Matter, The Analects of Confucius. Today on the show, Robert talks about how the Analects are all about learning to rule and that Confucius believed that you couldn't lead a state without being able to lead your family couldn't lead a family without being able to lead yourself. Robert argues that the Analects teach the reader how to integrate the kind of character traits and relational skills that are required to get good at life, and how this aptitude centrally rests on living with a quality called consummate conduct. Robert discusses the importance of what he calls all-in learning to the Confucian gentleman, the nuance of the idea of filial piety that Westerners typically miss, and the often overlooked check on this hierarchical dynamic called remonstrance. We enter a conversation with why Confucius so heavily emphasized the importance of ritual and how rituals hold a transformative power that can allow you to become something bigger than yourself. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash Confucian gentleman. All right, Robert LaFleur, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you are a professor of history, anthropology. You've specialized in China. Yes. And you did this great series a while back ago for the great courses about the Analects of Confucius. Now, I know a lot of our listeners listening, Westerners, they've likely heard of Confucius. They know who he is. But if you ask them, you know, what did Confucius say? What were his teachings? They'd probably draw a blank. And that makes sense. I mean, it's we're Westerners. Confucius is from the East. But you even make this case that in academic philosophy, amongst Western academic philosophers, Confucius gets the short shrift, even though he's had a pretty big impact on human thought. What's going on there? What do you think? Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's somewhat ironic that every, let's just say American for now, but every American has heard the name Confucius. There's the old saying about Confucius saying, Confucius says, and that is actually, by the way, how many of the entries in the book start, the master said. And what happened to me early on in my studies was what very interesting. I was doing my graduate work at the University of Chicago and I was chatting with a PhD student in philosophy and he he just he he just stopped in his tracks when I said I was systematically studying Confucius and he said that's not philosophy. You know, it's maybe and then with dripping dripping sarcasm, it's perhaps Asian wisdom, but it's not philosophy. And I think that's where it goes. I think that's the heart of it. He's taught usually as an afterthought if he's required in academic philosophy curricula. I'm speaking especially of the training of philosophy professors now in grad school. And a lot of that is because I would argue they don't know how to read the book. The book itself is extremely hard to read if you muscle through it like it's Kant like it's the critique of pure reason, or even Aristotle. The closest Western equivalent, and it's not a terrible one, in terms of the actual teachings, there are great differences. But in terms of the way it works, it's closer to a dialogue of Plato's than it is to systematic works where There are are clear definitions, and then you move to the next thing and the next thing. It fights against our assumption of rationality. It also fights against the book itself, seems to just tangle with us at every step if we take a very Western approach, like that's a contradiction. I always say that, that if you say it's a contradiction, that's failure right there. You've already failed. And so it doesn't, it resists, let me say. It resists the urge to muscle through it the way you might one of Kant's books. Well, let's dig into Confucianism, what what, what he's about. So I think to understand his teachings and his insights and his philosophy, you have to understand the world that Confucius lived in. So let's start there. Like, When was Confucius alive? When was he teaching? And what was going on in China at the time that inspired 
what he was saying and what he was advocating. Confucius lived, the dates are 551 to 479 before the Common Era. It's hard with all of these periods to target the birth date, but his death date is very clearly known as 479. So he lived he lived for you know 72 years in a period we now call the spring and autumn period of the Eastern Zhou dynasty which lasted for almost a thousand years. I mean, I'm using very round numbers here and was the dynasty before the great integration, the great imperial integration of China. Confucius sensed and made it very clear in his teachings that his society was going to, as my grandfather used to say, to hell in a handbasket, that things were, were bad and they were getting worse. Families were starting to to arrogate certain privileges to themselves that only the king of Zhou was supposed to have, and warfare was becoming more intense in this process that I only half-jokingly tell my students to memorize as what I call the Zhou dynasty, 200 to 100 to 50 to 20. I'm talking about the states here. Um, to seven of them, to two of them, and finally to one integrated empire. And this process of unification is often spoken of as a wonderful thing. Now we have an integrated China and the like. Confucius saw it differently. He liked the fragmentation. He liked the states living peacefully side by side. And he sensed that a much more terrible period was coming on, society was breaking down, and he sought to help to fix it. I was going to say, he's living around the same time as like Plato, Aristotle. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting when you, you know, span out and you look and see the kind of the global interactions. I mean, it's interesting historically to look at that through many periods. In this case, yes, Plato, Aristotle were thriving in, in, in their own part of the world. And so it sounds like there was some turmoil beginning to happen in, in, in Chinese political life and Chinese culture. Yes. And I think it's interesting, too, that the same sort of thing was happening in the West with Plato and like in Greece. There's a lot of political intrigue going on, a lot of turmoil, uh, conflict. Yes. And a lot of the philosophy that's happening with Plato and Aristotle was a, was a kind of a response to that. And it sounds like the same thing was happening with Confucius. Absolutely. And one of the things that's often said of this period, broadly speaking, I mean, it, it's really the, the period that follows, which ironically, it was called the Warring States period. That, there's nothing ironic about that part. But ironically enough, what we today call philosophy coming out of that period, and it's not unlike what you're saying with Greece and that part of the world, is it really was as a, a very fine title of a book about this era states, they were disputers of the Tao, disputers of the way. They were in conversation, but it was a martial conversation of sorts. And so what we call philosophy of that period, on some level, Every single word of it. This is what one of my first teachers told us in graduate school, and it was a surprise to us. Almost every single word you're reading, whether it's Confucius or other thinkers, Zhuangzi and, and others, Han Fei, these are names that, of, that, of, of that period, is it was about ruling on some level. Now, I, now I think you can take that too far, but on some level, everything you're reading was about how do you manage a state? And Confucius argued very strongly that you can't manage a state unless you can manage a family. And then from there on down, you can't manage a family unless you can manage yourself. And this integration, this, this integration of self family and society, or what Chinese called have called since that all through history, all under heaven, the whole shebang, the whole works. Unless you can manage yourself and your family, you have no chance of managing the rest. 
And just one quick thing back to the, the idea of why Westerners, uh, Western philosophy has not taken this as seriously. It's because many, many, not all, not all, but many, many Western philosophers have either used the, to use an example, the telescope, big picture, or the microscope. They've looked, they've looked at life from the, the minute all the way to the massive picture, Confucius, and I may say this in the, the televised lectures, Confucius stated that he didn't state it exactly, but the, but the idea is the intellects are about getting good at life. I like that. And that getting good at life is something that, of course, Western philosophy has aspired to that. But it's funny when you look at the great works of philosophy, that, that it's it's not attacked as directly, perhaps, as it is in Confucius's writings. Well, okay, so you mentioned the analects. That's attributed yeah. to Confucius, but what's it, int- exactly right. But what's interesting, like, and he's like he's like a lot of other famous philosophical or spiritual teachers. Confucius, we don't actually have anything written by Confucius himself. It's basically right. the analects is a collection that was compiled together by his students later on. Correct. Correct. That he didn't write a word of it. He is said to have written, been in at the hands of almost every important work of that era. But that is kind of a later mythologization. We don't have any evidence that he wrote these other works, any actual strong evidence. So it was put together over 500 years as, as a process by students, by students of students. And there's a lot of what academics like to say, I really don't like this word, a lot of distantiation going on. <laughs> in other words, none of his students you know, wrote until later in their lives when they were teachers. And then it was their students and their students. And it was is, is almost like a little, at first, a little cabal of Confucians who then built through their own followers something in a text that changed and was adapted, we're learning this from archaeology, all the way for about 500 years until around the beginning of our era, of the common era. And then we have the text in the order that we see it today. And is this, I mean, the reason why this sort of the way it was put together, is this why sometimes when you read the Analects, I've read the Analects a few times, and sometimes like, man, this sounds kind of cryptic, some, yeah, as you said, sometimes contradictory. Is it because of the way it was compiled together, or was, or is there something else going on there? No, that's definitely part of it. And we've learned this. Uh, in other words, we're living through a spectacularly interesting time right now in terms of archaeology, because what's coming from the ground—it's not just axles, you know, and spearheads and all those kinds of things. What's coming from the ground is texts, and we're finding out that. For example, in 200 BCE, there is a text of the Analects, and it's completely organized in a different fashion. Some of the what we would call in English words are different, and so so we now know we for for 2,000 years people didn't know this, but we now know that the text took a long time to come together into the form we have. Ironically enough, that hasn't made it more kind of what a Westerner might say, rationally organized. And so a friend of mine, long story that I start the lecture series with, is a colleague at a conference said that it's almost like 500 sayings. And that's that's about right. It's about 500 statements in the Analects. It's as though they dropped from the sky and then were just hurriedly shoved into 20 chapters. And so it looks incredibly haphazard. And I'm not trying to make an argument that, that too common in the West that you just kind of force a unity onto it to, to make it, a, you know, a, a strongly unified argument as though that it just has to be that way. I do argue in a very different way that there is a set of unified messages but that we have to change the way we look at it. And I quote my great professor at a Greek specialist, by the way, who translated Herodotus, the great historian named David Green, 
G-R-E-N-E. David Green at the University of Chicago would always tell us that you can't read Shakespeare. You should not read Shakespeare without always, always envisioning the stage. To the extent that you're reading words and you're checking sources and all of those kinds of things, you are you are losing that key connection. He's right about Shakespeare, I would argue as well. But for Confucius, all of a sudden, later on, years later, it hit me that Professor Green was right and that it's the same with Confucius. By trying to read it like we read Heidegger or Aristotle, what we're failing, what we have to understand is how, and we all, we all know this, the, how the pace of how a classroom works. And so if you start on book one and you start reading and you imagine the give and take of a gifted teacher and a class over the course of a long, very rigorous semester, what you start to see is a topic comes up and it's debated from one perspective And then you move on to other things. And then the topic, if it's really important, comes up again. And then you see another perspective where he's dealing with another student, maybe someone who's a little headstrong. And then he, the message seems to be a little bit different. And then you go on and on and on. And over the course of 16 weeks, or perhaps it's a year long course or a a much longer one. Maybe it's, it's just all the courses you take over your life is that what happens is that you start to develop deeper thinking about many topics because you have, as we might say, hit the knowledge muscle in all kinds of different directions. That's the analects. And that is the way to appreciate it and not be frustrated by this, by this, this, this seeming skipping around. Okay, so when you're reading it, imagine you're in a classroom. Imagine you're in a classroom with a gifted teacher and and students who are quite varying. Um, some who are timid, some who are headstrong. In other words, just like any classroom you've ever been in. And all of a sudden, it starts to make more sense when certain topics come up and, and one of them, Ren, compassion, a consummate conduct and compassion comes up very often that you start to see it in all kinds of different ways. It's confusing. It's like a good discussion class. It seems confusing at first. And then it finally comes together. Okay, so you said earlier, the whole point of the Analects and what Confucius was trying to do, he's trying to show people how to live a good life, Mm -hmm. which could eventually lead to individuals knowing how to lead well, if that was what part of their yes. life? No, no, he, explicitly in his case, that is exactly the point. And I would characterize it slightly differently as getting good at life. Getting good at life. Um, you know, the good life it does have at least echoes of the Greeks. And, and he, he's not against that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that. But, but it, it's getting good at life. Okay, so the analytics is about getting good at life in a social context, and a big part of that is living with consummate conduct, and Confucius talks about this, Mm -hmm. but he talks about it, but it's a hard thing to define. Mm -hmm. So first off, why is this hard to define, and then what would be a good working definition for us for consummate conduct? The idea is that, that this has been very difficult to translate, and legitimately so. Number one, because it's such a straightforward, simple character, it appears so often, it's the core, the the real core activity character that you find in the, and I say character meaning Chinese word, okay, but word in the Analects, and the idea is that it's about being good, so one translation, benevolence, okay, that's not wrong, the problem with translating is you have to pick a word or at least a small cluster of words for a Chinese character that has a semantic field that is voluminous, that encompasses three, four, five, six, seven, eight English words. This is one reason I read Shakespeare so much, because as a translator, it's just like, I need more words. Um, (laughs) You know, I want to at least envision the range, the field around one of these Chinese characters. And so benevolence is one that's been used. Humanity, another good one. It's not wrong. 
you know, be a consummate person, we say in English, that's that's the best one, I think, so far. But be be a benevolent person, be a humanistic person. Well, that's tricky. There's one translator in the 1930s who, who translated it as man being at his best. So be man being at his best. Okay. That gets a little clumsy in English. If I could translate it in the following way, this is how I would do it. I would call it social, moral, ethical virtuosity. And the most important words there are social and virtuosity. And I mean a I mean a virtuoso. I mean the kind you we we all know. Maybe you can't name it right now, the person right now, but you, we all know people like this who are so good, they flow through life and and they influence others. There's a there's a power to their goodness. And and it's not just about you know being good and behaving, it's about influencing others, having the capacity to transform a family through one's social actions, the capacity to transform one's company or even the broader electorate, you know, um, that is, that is Ren, that is consummate conduct. This has been translated in all kinds of ways. This translation that I think very highly of translates it as authoritative conduct. That's a good translation. The problem is Americans read it as authoritarian conduct, even though that's not what's being said. It, it, what's being said is the capacity to be good and to to convey that in one's actions to the point where others are transformed. You know, the whole idea of transformative goodness, which isn't isn't a bad translation now that I say that. <laughs> I might write that down. Okay, so just to clarify, so a yeah, an exemplary person is someone who has or like a gentleman, it's often translated like that. Yeah. is someone who lives with consummate conduct. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. Someone who lives and and, and that means complete and there are all kinds of other things that are embedded in that being trustworthy, being, being, um, you know, exerting your effort in loyalty. That's not the perfect translation, but, but, all, but there's, there's all kinds of other concepts that appear through the analects that are kind of under the umbrella of consummate conduct. This is, this is the king of the concepts. Gotcha. And, and I like, I want to reiterate on that point about when you have consummate contact, you have social virtuosity. And yes. as, as I was listening to that part, it reminded me, I mean, I keep doing this because I'm most familiar mm-hmm. with him. Is, it reminds me of Aristotle and his idea of, I guess, prudence. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, like a, a virtuous person knows what the right thing is to do at the right time for the right reason mm-hmm. in the right it's, it's It's very situational. Is, is Confucius the same way? It's like his ethics is often very socially situational? Exactly. The, the situational nature of it is often, ironically, given Aristotle's you know, approach, but is, is often what trips up Western readers because he is targeting lessons. And so it, it's very much, I mean, how one acts at any particular time, you can't create just a rule for it. So there's a French social thinker that I'm, I'm inclined to teach very often. And his name is Pierre Bourdieu, lived from 1930 to 2006. And one of the things he describes is what he calls situational mastery or a feel for the game. And, and this is the French word, jeu, you know, where, where game isn't a competition as much as it's a, it's a situation that requires strategy. And he describes that human beings spend a lot of time creating rules, but they're not really rules. We find ways around them and to deal with them in different ways. Any, anyone who's a teacher who's set attendance policies knows this, but everyone knows it on some level, you know, apparent, apparent <laughs> rules for teenagers. Okay. And so, so the idea is how do you deal? How do you influence in different situations, in different changing situations? And with the analects, this is the power of the classroom teaching rather than one big strong definition of this is what consummate con 
conduct is. Rather, you work through it to the point where you get to many, you see it in many different situations. So one of the classic entries in the Analects is where one student says, how should I behave? And he said, you should, I paraphrase, of course, you should go for it. And then the next student comes in and says the same question, asks the same question. What should I do? You should defer to your brothers and your father, you know, and then the third person comes in and says, two people just asked you the same question and you answered them differently. And he said, so-and-so is headstrong and I needed to hold him back a little bit. Okay. Think as a parent, think as a teacher of, of the idea of, whoa, 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 before you commit you know, to eight years for a PhD or something. Okay. Take a, take a, take a breath. Someone else is really timid. Go for it. Go for it. He is tailoring the messages. And if we're, if we're reading and trying to force an integrated message onto the text, we will fail to see that we should be learning from those different situations. And so, so, I mean, it's maddening that there's no definition But if you patiently work through the text and then start over and work back through the text, all of a sudden, this dynamic of different situations, different personalities, and different, again, social, relational kind of, I'll go back to the very fine word you're using, situations appear. And it's almost like, again, one thing I say in the lectures is, is it's almost like reading a 2,500-year-old set of advice columns and paying attention to the questions and the answers. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Gearheads know that some project needs so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. And now back to the show. So part of becoming this exemplary person, this gentleman that lives with consummate conduct, one of the things that Confucius talks a lot about is you have to develop a love of learning. Yeah. So, what exactly are you supposed to love? Like, what is what? Are, what's the what's the object of study for a Confucian gentleman? For Confucius, it was books. I, I'm not go, I'm not going to deny that. And no book was more important than the Book of Songs, the classic of poetry, as another translation that has been used, and the like. A collection of poems that people have argued over the years are about all of these lessons. It's an extraordinarily important text that I I do teach in my, in my teaching as well. So so in other words, it's not an argument for for that just just learn from life and don't read. I would say the most important thing is that you 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 have to be all in. So in one of the lectures, and this one's on YouTube, and at least a couple of the commenters uh, did not understand why I did this, but I refer to a sociologist named C. Wright Mills, who in his Sociological Imagination, a classic work from 1957, and it's still read today and for good reason, is he argues that to be a technician, you have to read the books and do what the book says. And we both know, we all know that we need technicians in the world. If I'm getting an MRI, I want a skilled technician. But he said, no, there's another level, which is imagination. You have to be all in. You have to not check out at the end of the day. You have to be thinking all the time. And you need to be like seeing one thing in a book and then another in life and putting them together. That's part of the creativity of becoming an exemplary person. What what sometimes translated, as you said, as gentlemen, because you put it together from books and life. And there's a great story that sums this all up. A person I've studied my whole life named Sima Guang, who lived from 1019 to 1085 of our era. And he, as a young child, was said to have been a little bookworm studying in his study 
reading the great texts of, by that time, 1500 years after Confucius, the great works of Confucianism. And he was studying away while all the other kids played in the courtyard. All of a sudden, there are cries from the courtyard. A little child was drowning, having played hide and seek and crawled into a big urn that happened to have had rainwater in it. And he was drowning. And all the children who had more experience in the real world, so-called, were at a loss of what to do as their, as their friend was drowning. Little Suma put down his book, ran out, grabbed a rock, broke the vase, and saved the child. This story has been told for a thousand years. It's on postage stamps. It's on um, any, you ask anyone in China, they know this story. And um, But the idea as I see it is even further than that. It's the very picture of the reader moving in the phrase of one of my other professors in Chicago, Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher, who said to move from text to action. That's the heart of it. To be a learner was to make that move from your books to the world. And that's why I bring in the idea of being all in, not I study until five o'clock and then I'm done. It's you're always thinking you're all everything is study. And, And I would say in our own world, it's the same equivalent that you're always thinking you're always processing. You go to a baseball game and you start thinking about how life works and all these different kinds of things. That's what Confucius wanted. And again, something I call being all in. Okay, so book study is important, but make sure you apply it to your life. Don't just be a bookworm. Another important- Uh, Alone. Alone, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And another important part of training to become an exemplary person is this idea of filial piety. I think if, yes. I think a lot of Westerners, if they were to ask, you know, hey, what, what's what's Confucianism about? It's like, well, it's just respect to your your parents and your elders. Yeah, but can you dig deeper into that? Like, what, what what role did filial piety play in the development of consummate conduct? the The fascinating thing is is how difficult this is to teach Western students because the message can be read as a, a very tinny one where it's listen to your elders, do what they say. And I'm not saying that that's entirely wrong in Confucius's thinking and in Chinese thinking over the ages more generally. But what Confucius is ultimately arguing for, and and, and this principle, by the way, this principle of filiality or filial conduct, as I like to translate it, the word piety is is, uh, problematic because it's it's so much a product of the early missionary translators. And and of course, there's nothing wrong with the word piety, but it has come to take on certain meanings in English that are tricky, not unlike authoritative and other other words that have a a funny ring to them for Westerners. But to, to have filial conduct is to act effortlessly in a world of hierarchy. And so one of the things I stress, and this is extraordinarily hard for Americans, while my students, and I've you know taught in Germany and France and China and Japan, and one of the things that I find that all my students outside the United States seem to understand this more, more readily than Americans, but that is that a hierarchical system can work argues Confucius. And you play your role. And so the idea is, is Confucius almost shouts, not, not literally, but it, it's, it, it echoes through the intellect. Act your role. And it's about learning to be within different roles in a hierarchy. And the hierarchy then is not, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, that whole thing, but rather a powerful integrative force where, as as one great Chinese source from, again, the same era, about 1,500 years after Confucius, says, why would you want to play the same note all the time? What, what, in other words, you have to understand hierarchy as the notes on a scale, and when they're played in in unison, and when they're played in order, all of a sudden they become great harmony. 
and and so that's the way of thinking. Again, Americans tend to be, and and there are some very good reasons for this, including how I feel. Is it you know this can be taken, this can be misunderstood very easily, and authoritarian governments have no problem taking over this message of act your role and you're not in charge. But but the teachings of the Analects, I would argue, are about something else. They're about they're about the power of hierarchical integration. And, and Americans, and I'll just say one last thing here, is Americans are tend to be, I should say, again, extraordinarily resistant to the idea of, of difference in society. And what I like to say is talk about cycling. And I love to, I love everything uh, um, about cycling and my life shuts down in July for the Tour de France. And the idea is every cyclist knows about what's called false flats. It looks flat, but it rises or falls ever so gently. And if you're in the wrong gear, you're in 43rd place instead of battling for the win. And too many Americans see flatness and and absolute equality in terms of social, kind of the social situation where there are undulations. And Confucius was was saying in many ways, just assuming in his world that there are undulations and that that when it, when it's casual Friday, that be careful, <laughs> be careful of your attire. Be careful when the boss says, you know, call me Bob, you know, all of these different kinds of things that there are undulations and he's trying to attune people to the undulations and how to act in your role. And the idea, finally, is that, yeah, you may be the younger brother at some time, but then you're going to be a father at another time. And you're going to be, you know, and, and at some point you're going to take over the family rituals and, and all of these different kinds of things. And so throughout our lives, we take over different roles and it's knowing how to act in the role. Finally, and I mean really finally, is you have, you have, I always say we're almost always undersecretary of something. We're almost never secretary of, and, and, you know, I'm using the American idiom for government, but we're almost always undersecretaries, you know, managers, this or that, that handling your boss, you know, is a role. And then, but then learning to take over authority at some point is also the role that is taught through filial conduct. And so you learn filial conduct, you, you get good at life and you get good at knowing the varying roles of some deference with teaching to authority and its responsibilities that you will have over the course of a life. So it's all about becoming that social virtuoso. Exactly. And the virtuoso, again, I, I've got to you know underline that the virtuoso has incredible, think of Yo-Yo Ma, okay? Incredible yeah, at the cello, incredible talent. There's, there's individual, we could look at just individual talent there and in a solo, absolutely. But put that talent in an orchestra and then you have the power the virtuoso power of a great symphony. Life is like the symphony and the virtuoso is the person who has a a real power. I'm not saying conductor. I'm saying the virtuoso who's, who's the instrumentalist has a real transformative power. And an important part of filial conduct, filial duty I typically, like you said, Americans hear that and they think, well, okay, you're just supposed to do whatever your mom and dad says or what your elders say, no matter what. But like, there's an important part you highlight in your lectures is this idea of remonstrance, yes. which allowed for some back and forth. Can you talk about remonstrance a bit? Yeah, the Chinese character is an interesting one in its own right. And, and it's like words on the, on the left side and kind of a bundle on, on the right and 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 I often call remonstrance a, a word, by the way, that in China and Japan, I've lectured on this topic, I've studied this topic for 30 years, is in China and Japan, just like in the United States, the word remonstrance or its Chinese or Japanese or Korean equivalents is not a word that's, that people can easily define. 
you know, it, it, it sometimes meant as to exhort people, you know, to, to, you know, do better, you know, exhorting people. But the basic principle in East Asia, it's used a little bit differently in the West, but the basic principle is this. In a hierarchical system, it is not just the privilege, it is the duty, the duty of the junior member of a hierarchy to correct and critique a more senior member. The student corrects the teacher. The child corrects the parent. The middle-level manager corrects the upper-level manager or CEO. It's an extraordinary responsibility and a very difficult one in practice. uh, Anyone who reads the news or has read uh, to just live through the history of presidencies, and I about you know someone who has been at it for a while that presidents often say oh i want people who will talk back to me who will correct me who will who will say no i don't agree in practice if you look at administrations through even my lifetime people don't like to be corrected authority doesn't like to be stopped but but it's it's a duty and I call it the forgotten principle of the like the 20 basic philosophical principles in Chinese life. It's, it's the one that's been left aside the most. And there are reasons for that. Early Chinese kings and emperors did not like to be corrected. And yet this principle has remained all the way to the present. I once had a young woman in Tokyo tell me at Waseda University where I was giving a talk, And she said, this is really interesting, but we don't have that in Japan. We just do whatever the authority says. And I said, of course, very politely, I said, of course you have it in Japan. (laughs) You know, all the books have been written over the ages, but but it, it tends to be the forgotten principle. But it's all important. Filial conduct, the hierarchy won't work unless the junior is gently correcting the senior. And the way you correct is to say or imply that you already know this. In other words, it's not like, I don't agree to this completely different thing. It's like, you know what to do. You've strayed from it. You know the mission of the corporation. You've strayed from it. And again, it's extraordinarily difficult to do in practice. Why are you going to be the person who criticizes the boss and probably gets in trouble? And yet the company will fail if you don't. So I imagine an exemplary person is one who knows how to provide that critique. If exactly. they're in the subordinate position. But also an exemplary person, if they're in the superior position, will know how to accept the critique. That's the hard part. Yeah. But that's exactly right. And so it, it's the idea of the person in authority. And that's why I say learning different roles is what filial conduct is about. Because when you're in that role, there's, again, a great, when you're in the upper role, the upper echelon, there's a responsibility. And it's not just a responsibility to make decisions. It's a responsibility to take in that critique and to reform one's thinking, to clarify one's thinking. And so so every role has a responsibility. And you're going to play many, many, many different roles during your life, including multiple ones at the same time. You're both a, a you're both a child and a and a parent at some point in many many lives. All those kinds of things. So one last thing I'd like to talk about an important part of mm-hmm. Confucianism is the role of ritual, and it seems like yeah. Confucianism is a, a, a stickler for ritual, yeah. which is interesting because you know we've been talking about how, the way he talks about sociality is very flexible, and you have to know what the right thing to do in in the situation. Mm-hmm. The situations can change. But he, I mean, sometimes he can come off as very rigid about ritual. What's yeah. going on there? Yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting because it's true that he he you know he he argues for for the, you know the centrality of ritual in life, and he means doing the ritual exactly as it's intended. To use a stage analogy, to read your words exactly. And yet, and, and so, so again, another thing that Americans tend to rebel at, if you say ritual, it's like, oh my God, you know, following all the rules. But the idea is we do ritual all the time. And he does describe a kind of spontaneity 
And early on, I couldn't get this message either. Uh, most of my graduate peers and I thought that Confucius was just a big bore. And, and it was a, a, a little book that I do recommend. It's widely available if people look for it. And it's called Confucius, the Secular as Sacred by Herbert Fingeret is the title. But the, what all of a sudden is that Fingeret describes a handshake. I reach out my hand. You reach yours up to mine. You know, all of a sudden we have this social accord, this social rapport that wasn't there before with just this tiny, tiny ritual. Ask anyone from East Asia and they say, oh my God, handshaking is really difficult. I don't know how to do it. And yet it seems effortless if you grow up in the culture. Flash over to to East Asia and my experience there, bowing. I once bowed to an animated ATM figure. I didn't know I was doing it. I was just bowing. And then next thing I knew, I look around and it's like, oh my God, I just bowed to an ATM. But bowing is just a natural part of Chinese, Japanese, and Korean society that one almost doesn't think about. Those are rituals. And even in more elaborate rituals, there is the idea of if you just read your words, again, think of the stage. If you just read your words, you're not going to be an effective actor. We all know how tinny that sounds. Radio, local radio commercials that where it's obvious that the dialogue that's supposed to be happening is just two people reading and it, it fails. The distraction is so great. You forget what the ad is for. That's a failure. That's a ritual failure or a right bomb, like a photo bomb. And, and, but the idea is to do a ritual according to all the prescribed steps, which throughout Chinese history, they were all written down, but with such aplomb and with such skill, we forget that we're watching a ritual as we see this melodic, harmonious set of actions come together. Think of great actors and the spontaneity and all that happens there. And so that's that's ritual to Confucius. And it's like, yep, there are things written down and you've got to do them just like an actor with lines, but written by good writers. Okay. And it has to seem as though you're not going through a set of actions. That is ritual for Confucius. Okay. So I guess the idea is you got to study the stuff really hard, practice it a lot so that it eventually just becomes effortless and you appear like a virtuoso. Like you're not even thinking about it. You are a virtuoso and your performance, it's performative, but not in this cynical way we often think of that word. It's performative, it's embodied, it's enacted, and from there, it's transformational. One last thing about this is that there's this integrative power of ritual that has a coming together. And so one of the great French sociologists, Emile Durkheim, who lived from 1858 to 1917, he described that humanity needs to be renewed periodically and that, that, that all sociality and all the power of society comes from these periodic renewals. And people come together, they're re-energized. Ritual for Confucius is like that. It's an integrative power that has a, it lasts, but it has to be reenacted because it, it starts to wane. And so the power of ritual is the integrative power. And of course, if you have a ritual where it's just a bomb, I, I give a quick example in the lectures of, you know, the president of the college reading an honorary degree. We're all listening. We're all in the middle of the ritual. We're used to it. And all of a sudden he mispronounces a basic word. And all of a sudden the whole thing is destroyed. The, the dream is broken. That happened, you know, I in my experience. And that's where I start to see the integrative power, and also how it can go wrong. So you need to be a virtuoso. And if you mispronounce something, you've got to find a way to reenact, to, to get, the, get the ritual back. As you were describing that, it made me think of, like, trying to make it related to my life, I think if we've all had those experiences where maybe you go to like a nice dinner party and you're just like, you just do everything right. Like you do, you practice all the laws of etiquette, the rules of etiquette that you know, but it's like seamless and flawless. And like, there is yeah. something, it's ennobling. You feel good about yourself and you feel good about the people around you. And you feel good about the whole situation when everyone's trying their best to like work together to make this thing a night to remember. 
and it's a night to remember and it's a great social, it's a great integrative social experience where people become, and again, I'm echoing this French thinker, Emile Durkheim, where you become more than yourself. That It works so well that at least temporarily you are snatched away from, these are his words, the monotony of your daily life <laughs> to, to something different and bigger. And he calls that society. And I believe Confucius is, is saying something very similar, that that kind of virtuosity leads to that kind of dinner party experience and others that you just described. Well, Robert, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of funny because I'm in the middle of a, of a huge array of things that will be coming out in the next year or so, including translating this French thinker and a thousand pages of his stuff. So I have a lot of stuff that will be coming out soon, including my translation of Confucius, which even with the editing process, it, it could be 2023, but but it's it's going to be, it's coming with a lot of the things in the translation that I've been talking about today behind it. In any case, my blog is not a bad place to start. And so it's called Round and Square, and you probably can find it by just searching Round and Square. But it's also, and this is a a sign of when um, blogs were really a a bigger thing, is it's just robertlafleur.blogspot.com. It's eventually going to be going to a website, but, but for now, it's at that address. And I would say to anyone, because because I, I, you know, I email me, you know, it's just Lafleur at Beloit.edu. It's pretty straightforward. And I'm happy to correspond and send some things that aren't published yet and all kinds of things. I'm very happy to talk with people. Fantastic. Well, Robert Lafleur, thanks for his time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Robert Lafour. He's the lecturer of the Great Courses course called Books That Matter, The Analytics of Confucius. You can find that at The Great Courses Plus, or now it's called Wonderium. You can also find out more information about Robert's work at his website, robert-lafleur.blogspot.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash confuciangentleman, where you can find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our Art of Manliness website where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLIUS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android, iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.